Brian Costello is the director of Headstrong, a progressive company offering a range of services, but one of which we're going to really do a deep dive on today, and that is therapy. From depression to the intricacies of anxiety to psychiatric medication, these are all things that we cover today and much more about mental health. This is the Into the Mind podcast. My name is Harrison Brown. If you're watching or listening, I hope this helps. I think that mental health is such a present issue in society nowadays and it's great that so many more people are kind of identifying it and dealing with it. What are the most common types of mental health issues you see nowadays? Okay, yeah. <clears throat> it can be summed up in word one, one word, which would be anxiety. Anxiety is pretty much the predominant and prevailing mental health issue that we're dealing with uh, in uh, in 2023 stroke 2024. Mm. Um, when I first started way back in 2007, um, depression was the thing. So I actually met a friend of mine that I, I've known. I met her through what I do. Um, and we met for a coffee the other day and that's what she said, do you still get lots of depressed clients? And I was like, interestingly, no, uh, not as much. We're now pretty much dealing with anxiety and then all its, um, its um, subordinate issues, all the issues that kind of come off the back of anxiety that mm. people think then are individual issues, but actually aren't individual issues. They are all uh, anxiety-related issues, but they look as if they're not. What is actually happen happening in the brain when anxiety is present? So I had, I was on a, there's a certain drug that I was on for years, Citalopram. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm not on it anymore, but anxiety has always been an issue to me it's for, for, forever. And I think it relates back to the ADHD, dyslexia, yep. schooling, so to speak. But what what is actually happening within the brain when someone is anxious? Yeah, so in terms of the chemistry, uh, there's a whole heap of things going on with neurotransmitters, hormones, all of this type of stuff. But to be honest, um, if you want to, if you're interested in that, go and study that. My expertise is more about knowing about the psychology and the mechanics yeah. that are going on at that point. So the mechanics that are going on is you, you are just purely in protection mode. Everybody mm. thinks that anxiety is a bad thing. If you were not anxious, you would have a significant issue. Mm. It is okay to be anxious about many, many things. The issue is what happens when anxiety tips over into something else. Mm. So for example, I talk about five layers of anxiety, that there's five or five stages of anxiety. Level one is, uh, I'm going to miss my bus. So it's like nothing. It's like, yeah. uh, oh, I'm a bit anxious. I'm going to miss my bus. I'm not going anywhere important. Or I'm going to miss my train. Um, but it's just annoying. So it doesn't really have any hangover to it. It just yeah. it disappears and I'm gone. A level two is like um, when you start to get nervous about an exam. So it's like, it's understandable. It's quite big. Um, and you're thinking about it quite a lot. But, uh, you know, you're okay. And you know you're going to be okay in the end. And you've still got an end to it. Level three is where the problems start to begin. Level three is where you have a, a long build-up. So you're, you're thinking about it a lot and you can't get it out of your head. Mm -hmm. And once the thing is finished, you may even have a bit of a, a hangover after it where you're still thinking about it. 
I use the example of like doing a talk and work or hosting so public speaking is a mm. classic example you know so you're for some people this would be a level four or level five but for many of us it's a level three it's like oh my god I'm so nervous I, I'm overthinking it I'm over preparing and for me when you get to level three anxiety we've now got an issue level four is what I'd call an anxiety attack so this is now in a place where fight or flight is entirely kicked in you are no longer in proper control and uh, but fight or flight um, I call these the, the active stages of fear because you still have a choice. So mm. and somebody in fight or flight is still making decisions. Yeah. But once you get to level five, which I call a panic attack, I wouldn't get into the semantics of trying to separate an anxiety attack and a panic attack. I only use this just to use it as an explanation. Yeah. A panic attack for me is when you reach the passive level of fear and this is now fold, freeze. This person is now no longer making any decision. Mm. In answer to your question, though, with, with, with all of these different things, the same thing is going on. I'm in danger. I need to protect myself. And the mechanics are purely about what your mind thinks is the best thing that it can do to keep you safe. Yeah. So whatever that is, run, get out of this. Sometimes overthinking and overprepare. But it's, it's vital to be able to feel anxiety. It's about what level you're feeling it at and whether mm. or not that's a good thing or whether that's a bad thing. Is there any kind of external um signs that someone's going through anxiety there's a sign that i know very well um which is if someone's hands are really really cold it's almost Mm -hmm. like the the blood's going to the center of their body it's protecting them and that's that's a telltale time a sign is there any other signs that people can look out for when to spot anxiety Yeah, yes, but they're all subjective. All so different. somebody else, people will show them in different ways. Mm. So you could have someone who is presenting on the outside as entirely okay, mm. but inside is absolutely freaking out and is having yeah. the most horrible time inside their head. For some reason, anytime I think about this, I always imagine being at a concert. Mm. So I always imagine somebody, because crowds is a big thing that can trigger people. There's a lot can happen. So we're in Glasgow just now. So I always picture myself in the hydro, you know, Mm. with someone having a panic attack because something's happened or it's too busy or it's too dark or it's too loud or whatever it is. And what you're, somebody could be like, no, no, I'm fine. No, no, I'm fine. But if somebody's like that, they're more than likely going to start speaking in very clipped sentences because, um, to have a big long conversation while having panic is difficult because you're having to keep your focus on the inside of your head to keep mm. the anxiety under control. So you won't tend to find somebody who's anxious speaking like we are, for mm. instance. Now, they may speak very quickly and they may get really anxious and they'll do this, but again, there won't be a, a, a natural flow to that because they're, they're anxious, so they're just trying to get stuff out, so yeah. it might even not make any sense. On the flip side of that, though, there are a number of people who might go very, very quiet and very withdrawn and just pull themselves back. And mm. the protection mechanism for them, it's natural fight or flight, is, is just, I'm, I'm out. I'm, yeah. I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to say anything. I can't get my words out. I'm, I'm not okay. That's easier to spot than the other one. Mm. But I think it's, it's difficult to say there's a one-size-fits-all because it all depends on the context, the situation, yeah. who you're with. And I think it, it's about, if you're somebody who wants to help, it's about understanding that the person that you're with and having just 
always making sure that your communication's open. Yeah. But that really lies on the person who is experiencing the anxiety. And because it's a big thing to trust someone to say, sorry, I'm feeling really anxious. Yeah. Uh, imagine your concert thing. You've been yeah. waiting for the concert for months. They've been excited about it. The support band have just been on and you had a panic attack. Mm. And that is a huge thing to have to turn around to your friends and say, I know we paid 65 quid each for these tickets, yeah. but I can't, I can't stay here. I need yeah. to go. So what people do is they don't say anything. They keep themselves in it. It makes it worse. And then it will explode everywhere because the mind will not stop. The mind will be going, you need to get out. 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 And it will yeah. keep going. I just feel as if I want to caveat that though, but the good news is though that that's entirely sortable. Yeah. And it's you're not broken. So for anybody listening to this, and I state to you as well, Harrison, if, yeah. Yeah. if you're if you're someone who experiences anxiety, you are not broken. Mm. It is merely that what's happened is is that your brain has lost its ability to um to regulate whatever's happening with that anxiety. And again, that then opens up a whole box of issues that could be connected to why that happens yeah i think i think thinking back in it i can only speak from personal experience but for me it was always social mm. and uh i can events have always been really difficult for me it's really strange because i can speak to people over podcasts or on yep. camera and i can be fine but as soon as it comes to events i don't really know what it is it's something about the social situation that i'm in that just huge bouts of anxiety and what I'll do is I'll just retreat to the toilet and then wait until I can just disappear and yep. I know that I do it yep. um, but I think with any of these things it's like constant exposure and help can maybe uh, begin to sort that problem because the only way you get better at things is to constantly expose yourself if you go to the gym once, you're not going to build muscle. Yes. But if you go to the gym for a year, all of a sudden you think, oh, I've got some pecs going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I do think, but the, the, the problem is people with anxiety, they'll just avoid the situations. So they will never grow out of those situations. There's your coping strategy. Yeah. Avoid. Uh, and, and that is very natural. That's a very yeah. natural thing to do. I, I would extend your, your gym metaphor even a little bit further yeah. that to make it even, even more powerful, um, would be to get yourself a personal trainer, which mm. is ultimately somebody like me, uh, and they'll grow your pecs even more, um, yeah. and go for therapy, which is yeah. a thing that a lot of people don't think will help any mental health problem. There's a lot of stigma over therapy still. I know we talk a lot about it a lot more, and people will say, oh, I've been to see my counsellor, even men. I mean, we're, yeah. we're speaking here. When I first started my business, even up, I would say, until probably about 20, oh, 2018 even, I would say that my one-to-one -one client base was predominantly women. Yeah. And now, uh, well, um, this week, in fact, um, I, I think I've had an almost all-male week um, in, in the clinic. Why, why do you think that flip has occurred? Because I know that when I was younger, it was very not spoken about yep. especially amongst men yep. um i might be generalizing here but from what i could see it was not spoken to uh or not spoken about amongst men but there has been a huge which is brilliant by the way a huge flip where a lot of guys are coming forward and saying no i have struggled with x y and z yep. and i do need help why do you think that flip has occurred i think it's merely because of that yeah <clears throat> we've made it okay to talk about um and I think that 
So I'm, I'm now 50. So my generation was not good at it. But I think we started it a little bit. We, we began to um, speak about our emotions. Like I remember that even when I was like 25, 30, the, 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 the group of friends would kind of talk about stuff if people were struggling, would get it. Mm. I don't think that was the change. I think it was the beginning of the change. Mm. I think what then happened was, uh, I, I don't know what age you are, Harrison, but, but your generation, you're, you're yeah. clearly younger than me, I think then took that mantle on a little bit more. Um, and now we've got a generation coming up when I speak to some young men, so teenage boys, for instance, and they'll talk about, no, no, I tell my friends, I tell my friends when I'm anxious. We've still got a long, long way to go, but it has become much, much more acceptable. Um, it's still not perfect. And, and we still do exactly the same unconscious teaching, especially... Uh, no, I, I don't claim at all to be an expert in male mental health, mm. but obviously being a guy and doing what I do. But my, my read on it uh, w- would be that we still train boys in the same way as we used to. We still say the mm. same things. Um, uh, when we're doing things like when the dads are standing next to the football pitches, come on, get up. Yeah. Know that hurt. Come on, get up, keep going. Um, I, I read a post the other day uh, and it was... Uh, it was a, a dad talking about uh, apparently an under eights football team, so seven year olds, talking about how um, it's embarrassing to watch this team lose again. And we know that if one player goes forward, then another player has to drop back into defence, and it's all about geometry and triangles. And you're like, these kids are seven, uh, like. Yeah. But it's that mentality that we wouldn't necessarily do with young girls. Mm-hmm. If they were playing netball, we go, "Did you have a good time?" Yeah. Um, this is. Jumping all over the place. Apologies for tangents, but um, I listened to a podcast um, that uh, the comedian uh, Maisie Adam mm. uh, did. And Maisie Adam did a podcast called The Beautiful Game because she was brought up to be a big football fan by her dad. And she talked about her experience of following male football. And she was using it as a mental health thing. And she was saying, mm. no wonder, you know, people screaming the abuse that they were given. And she said that one of the amazing things that happened was when she was introduced to women's football, that didn't happen. Yeah. When the Lionesses were going to win the Euros a couple of years ago, she said Wembley felt supportive. Even when the game wasn't going well, everybody was like, come on, you can do it. It yeah. was like this really... And she's like, it was just lovely to be in 90,000 people who all wanted the people on the pitch to do well. Mm. I think that mentality still needs to change to help us with the boys but and, and the men. But anyway, I think that's why it's getting better is because yeah. I think we are talking about it more and the younger men that we can get in, they'll then teach their boys and yeah. it's, a, it's a long generational shift. Yeah. And do you think the social, the social anxiety side of things, do you think that that... It's, it's just, it's interesting what you said there. You said less people are coming forward with depression. Yes. But more anxiety. Yep. And... I'm just I'm correlating that in my head with social media, phones, TikTok, Instagram, uh, and just general social a lack of socializing. Do you think that's the reason? Yes, I think it also comes into the fact that we have made it a conversation that we're allowed to have. Mm. So there was a there's a guy really fascinating called Dr. Michael Yapko, um, and um, he says that anxiety precedes depression by about two years. Um, so uh, that you can tell somebody's going to get depressed because first how it will show up as anxiety. So when I put myself back as a teenager, I think if I was a teenager now, 
I'd probably have taken citalopram or sertraline or one of the other antidepressants. I, I, as it was, I don't think that was spotted. Mm. When I then track that back, I can then track that back into school and go, wow, I, I think I probably was anxious in school. You know, there was bullying going on. There was all of this, but we just didn't talk about it. It yeah. just wasn't a thing. So therefore, I think there was a generation that therefore ended up depressed merely because we didn't talk about it early enough, so we weren't catching it, so people were getting to depression mm. and nobody was catching them, nobody was getting it. However, I do think that the pace of the world, and especially when we come to social anxieties, I think the, 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 our, our online world has a lot to answer for. Mm. Uh, and I think it's uh, yeah, I think it's a critical critical factor. I would totally agree, and I think I would I would what I would suggest, and this is just what what's helped me again. But having time away from your laptops, from your phones, from your desktops, from whatever it is, and doing something, whether it be exercising, walking, um, making food, just just something that involves the mind that doesn't involve your phone. Yep. And it, honestly, people were like, oh, but what do I do? It's really <laughs> difficult, but it helps so much yep like uh, i was with my girlfriend the other day and we ordered a pizza but we didn't order a pizza uh, to just pop in the oven or a takeaway pizza we ordered a pizza to make and we both put our phones away made the pizza chucked a bit of dough in each other's face it was fun yep. and there was this relief that comes over you because you haven't been bombarded in texts and instagram notifications and twitter and what is this to, you know it's there's a clarity that falls over you when you don't have your mobile phone that because it's so clouded when you do have your mobile phone you forget it's there it's a really weird thing to say but I, you get I, what I, mean? oh, I totally get it it's it, it's become so when i help parents so I, I love working with young people and when i help parents i say to parents because the phone's become a, a regular punishment yeah i'll take your phone off you you're <laughs> yeah. not going to get your phone and what i say to parents is i was like you have to understand that to a generation um so to, to definitely to me, um, my oldest daughter's group, she'll be 25 in March. So um, to, to her, she'll remember a life before mobile phones. Mm. But even then, round about there, um, to me, it's a tool. Because I loved so much my life without it. And, and smartphones have only been part of my life for whatever it is, the last 15 years or something like that. I had 35 years before that. Mm. But for anybody who's 20, uh, 21, 22, it's, and, and especially to teenagers, 14, 15, 13, 12, as I say to the parents, I'm like, you're not taking away a tool. You're mm. taking away an integral part of their social life, of their friendship networks, of if you're not up, everything changes. You won't know what to talk about. You might be out of conversations. If you're not in the group chat, then things could happen and you don't even know it. You know, it's, and that can be obviously exceptionally toxic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely a, um, they are, we, we are only just understanding, I think, the, what they do. I think there's a big yeah. social experiment going on at the moment. It started, yeah. I suppose you could argue it started when Mark Zuckerberg invented or, <laughs> Yeah. Whatever, stole. Uh, let's still get a stole. Yeah, <laughs> let's, uh, let's uh, allegedly uh, can we put out. Uh, I think there has been a court case, um, but um, it, when that started, I mean, he yeah. literally has changed the world, and and not necessarily for positive things. And it is absolutely messing mm. a lot of people up. And what you did is, is, is for me fantastic. Time mm. away from that. Mm. I saw a video. Uh, here's a classic example. Uh, so I grew up. Um, 
uh, I grew up in the 90s, so the beginning of kind of rave culture, techno music, all that, that type of stuff, right? And uh, it was a great, it was a great time. It had its moments, and it was great, and, and it was what it was. But I saw a video recently because of the Instagram. See, so we're talking about social media. Going on Instagram, guess what I saw? <laughs> but I saw a page, and it was a clip of Space and Ibiza in 1992 or something like that. I can't remember who the DJ was. But the first thing you notice when you watch it, music's pumping, the place is going mental, and there's not a phone in sight. Yeah. And I remember being in those places. I remember even just, you know, not a million miles from where we are at the moment, being in the Barrowlands and just everybody was in the same vibe. Everybody mm. was doing the same thing. And it's not like that anymore. I think there's now so much, I want to capture what I'm doing today so I can show people tomorrow what I did today rather mm. than being in today and enjoying today in that moment. How many young people would do what you and your girlfriend did the other day and have filmed the whole thing, potentially even to the point of having a tripod set up with our phone on it to capture the content yeah. that when they threw that dough in each other's faces, that it wasn't just fun, it was because, oh, if I throw dough in his yeah. face, he might throw it back and that's going to be good content. And that scares the bejesus out of me because yeah. that is not a way to run your head. It's, it, like, it's, I, I feel social media in a weird way is making us less social. And I definitely spotted this when I, for a job for quite a while, I did a travel photography and videography. Yep. Part of the reason why I, I, I still really enjoy it and I do it a lot, but part of the reason why I stopped it is because these travel influencers that you see on Instagram, trust me when I say everything's fake. I, I've, I've literally yep. met guys and they've gone, let's go to this field to film a bit. And I thought, you know, it's a job, I'll go. Yep. They spend three hours trying to get a girl to do something where she looks good in the right light. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Yep. Pretend to run over there and dance a bit and I'm gonna film it and, and it's it gonna look It looks spontaneous great. in the picture, but actually yeah. it's taking three hours to get. Yeah. I, it's wild. So I, I, took, I, I remember being around these guys and I thought, what the fuck am I doing? This is not <laughs> real. So now whenever I film, I document nature, I document real shit. Yep. Going to Finland to see the Northern Lights is a natural phenomenon. If we catch it, we catch it. We don't, we don't. But yep. it's a cool thing to do. Absolutely. It's still a job, but it's an amazing thing to do. And it's not fake. And I think people's algorithms maybe need to change to not enjoy the fake shit, so to speak. And that is... I promise you this is the only the only ad that will be in this podcast. Chisholm Hunter are the sponsors of the Into the Mind podcast. And without Chisholm Hunter, we would not be here today. Chisholm Hunter are a family-owned business. They've been going for over 165 years. All my jewellery that you can actually see on at the moment, and my watch at the moment, I'm actually wearing a Hamilton watch. They're an awesome brand. It's from Chisholm Hunter. So make sure if you're looking for anything in particular, head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. And that is a mental health issue. So yeah. the way your brain works, this comes back to your question about what's actually happening in, in your head. Yeah. So the way our brains work is our, your brain's, a, you could class it as two things. I'm going to steal, I can't actually remember who I heard say this, but it was on a, a, a podcast about the mind. Um, and it was a scientist that said, your mind is a prediction engine. Mm. So basically your mind it's one of its jobs is to predict what happens next. What I also say is that your brain is a meaning machine. And what I mean by that is that everywhere we go, your brain puts meaning on things. And your brain says, what is that? What does it mean? What is that? What does it mean? And that meaning tells you how to feel. Mm. So, for example, we walk out of here, we see a rainbow in the sky. 
one person turns around and go, says, isn't God great? Somebody else turns around and says, that's not God, that's physics. Somebody else bursts into tears because it's a message from heaven from their gran that said they'd mm-hmm. send me a rainbow. Um, and me, obviously, being a mental health person, I take a picture of it and I post it online with a caption that says, in order to have the rainbow, you first must have the rain. Hashtag <laughs> mental health awareness. And I get validation like we're talking about from internet strangers and feel good about myself. But we all looked at the same rainbow. Mm. And this happens in everything in our life. So as we go around, our brain is creating meaning. However, to create that meaning, you have to be taught that meaning. And where I was taught it, and potentially where you were too, is by people with experience. And we were taught how the world worked by our mums, our dads, our grands, our grandpas, our aunts, our uncles, our teachers, sometimes our big brothers, big sisters, the the people that surrounded us. And we looked to them and we said, how does the world work? And sometimes we didn't agree. And sometimes we went, you don't know, you're too old, you don't understand rave culture, mum. You know, you don't understand why I have to stay out till seven o'clock in the morning and dance in the fields. (laughs) You don't understand what it's like. Um, so it's not to say that we agreed with them all the time, but there was still a lesson there. Mm. And now what we have is we have a world which in some ways is amazing that I can get the answer. There's that thing, you know, that the, the internet has killed conversation because mm. now if you say to me, who was in that movie uh, that that was, yeah. rather than having a 45-minute conversation about it, I'm on IMDb in two seconds yeah. going, it was him. Uh, it was yeah. this person here. It was, oh, it was David Tennant that was in it. <laughs> um, you know, um, but it's brilliant for all of that, but we have to understand that that meaning is therefore being influenced by... Mm. A, a, a world that we are now out of control of and just like you said there that you have 15 year olds 14 year olds 13 year olds really impressionable minds hmm. watching that girl dance in a field yeah and they don't have the rational ability or the ability to rationalize that photo and go i bet that took four hours to get <laughs> or i bet there was yeah. a queue of other influencers waiting to get into the field yeah. you know to to take that photo that they can't see the reality and that gets really really scary when you get into filters yeah and the fact that um, now what we're what we my phone makes me not look like me hmm. so therefore what happens when i look in the mirror if i look at my face 50 times a day and 50 times it's in my phone because I'm recording wee TikToks or Snapchats or little videos. And every time I do it, it's not me. And then I look in the mirror. My brain is, what is, my brain is learning. That's the meaning. That's you. So I look in the mirror and I go, oh my God, I look horrible. Mm. But I didn't, I never saw the real me. And this is my worry about it is we're not seeing the real world. I'm not going down with social media. It's not that. As as you see, it's got so many great things, but we have to understand the impact. But yeah, but it's terrifying. I think that especially on TikTok, TikTok's, I'd say, marginally worse than Instagram. Yes, I would agree. If you go live on TikTok or you want to post a TikTok, automatically, without you even pressing anything, as soon as you hit the record button, it puts a filter over your face, smoothing your skin and making you more symmetrical. And I go on TikTok and think, fucking hell, I'm beautiful. (laughs) And then then I come away and think, oh, I'm just an ugly bastard. (laughs) Oh, no, my teeth aren't perfectly straight. And oh, no, and my eyes aren't that big. Yeah. Yeah, but... And that's me at 26, like looking at that and thinking, oh, why don't I look that good? Can you imagine a little child, because it's what they are, they're children at 13, 12, 11, going on social media and looking at their filtered face, the detriment that will will have to them in later life. It's terrifying. 
very much. Really terrifying. Have you seen a increase in eating disorders and those kind of mental health issues coming into play? Yes. Yeah, Christ. we're seeing it, and we're now seeing it more and more with boys because the same things now. It used to be always, um, it was always that you know that you know you, the, the classic thing you know about you picked up a copy of any girl's magazine mm. and it was how to look good, how to do that thing. Did you see actually just as a, a, a wee side issue on that that. Um, Oh, uh, who was it? It was one of the huge brands had an advert banned yesterday. Uh, no, no, it was a makeup brand. Um, and it was about get ready to get back to school, uh, to slay the back to school week. And they've been banned. It's been banned because it suggested that the only way to succeed was to wear makeup. Oh, my God. And that, in a way, gives me hope and that somebody noticed that realised what was going on and has banned that advert and said yeah. no I don't know if that would happen in America for instance where they'd go well yeah. it makes big bucks so who cares right? Mm. but over here uh, the, the fact that that was caught I think is a real positive but in answer to your question it's because of that type of thing we're now getting as boy influencers so male mm. influencers coming out six packs the want for I've worked with enough personal trainers maybe about you might know as well 5% body fat is it yeah. normally sometimes around 6% body fat to get your abs through if you want to yeah. have that kind of visible uh, six pack that's not healthy and not possible for many people yeah. so what they do is they then start starving themselves body dysmorphia off the roof uh, mm. or, or through the roof sorry I, I look horrible um, uh, I, I don't like my skin my teeth are this I'm the ugliest person in the world mm. It's it, it's young people at the moment are absolutely like I said earlier a big social experiment, and we don't know what the end of it is or how it's going to show up, and it's messing them up. It's definitely messing them up. I think especially from from what I can see. Again, this isn't a generalization, but uh, women lip fillers. Yep. Uh, you know, getting Botox. Yep. Uh, having their teeth veneered. So many guys that I know, especially down in London. Again, not a generalization, but my pals mm. down in London, they've got all their teeth veneered. It's it's people are getting so infatuated with how they look they forget how they actually feel it's like it's just it's totally blurring the lines and i think but it's also gone too far the other way because now you get models that are obese plus yes. size models yes. now to me being overweight is fundamentally unhealthy and it actually shortens statistically your life yep that's just a fact so why would you promote obese and plus size models saying that it's healthy. A model to me is someone to look at and aspire to. You might never get there, and yep. it might be unachievable, but you should aspire to get there. Um, but now it's tipped the other way. It's okay to be unhealthy. And that, that's terrifying to me because then it, it, it brings in eating disorders. And it's like, is there any, is there any way that this can actually be beneficial? Yep. Uh, it's it's really it's really strange, but, but that's it, isn't it? Though it's sort of to interrupt me. It's, it's yeah. like it's exactly that. It's like the the, the lines, the the influence that now the online world had, which mm. it wouldn't have had before. So I, I totally agree with you. I think if you want to live your life and you accept the health implications of being overweight, and mm. that's where you want to be 
do you know what? Go for your life, sister yeah. or brother. If you accept that, same as smoking. Yeah. If you accept the fact that smoking is bad for your health, yet you still want to do it, then go for it. Yeah. But promoting it, and I'm in total agreement, promoting it as a healthy lifestyle mm. is not for me okay because it is, it's just an eating disorder the other way. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if you put, put a size four model or a, 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 a woman the same age as you if you put a 26 yeah. year old woman who was four stone on the cover of a magazine people would lose their shit yeah. uh, and they'd be like what are you doing but you go the other way everybody goes well high five body positivity and I'm like yeah. there has to be a, a thing there that says yes and by the way this has impacts on your health to be mm. like this and, and I think that's a, this comes back to the meaning of because it becomes okay to be certain ways, uh, mm. or it becomes not okay to be certain ways, as you say. It's not okay that my teeth aren't straight. It's not okay that my um, that my skin's not perfect. It's not okay to not be perfect because I am constantly in transmit mode. I'm not just. I'm never allowed to just be me. I'm mm. I'm constantly visible to the world, uh, even though, and I mean this for young people like that that fear. It, Sorry, again, you were about to ask a question and I've taken it on another tangent. There are many, many young people now that are choosing not to drink, not because they don't want to drink, but because they're worried about being videoed and captured doing mm. things that they don't want to do. So they are making choices through fear, not through, uh, through anxiety, essentially to bring us full circle to where we started. It's an anxious choice. It's not a choice of... I think it would be healthier not to drink as much alcohol maybe as we did in our generation. Mm. It's now a choice of, no, no, I'm not getting drunk at this party because I worry that somebody might video with me and then it's going to go online and I'll be ashamed and I'll be embarrassed. So mm. I'm not going to do that. What kind of mental health implications do alcohol, does alcohol and smoking, for example, or, or even drugs, I know that MDMA is a huge one at the moment, for the kind of techno scene, if you yep. want to call it that. I mean, I've been to Creamfields, everyone knows what yep. goes on. Uh, yep. What what impact do alcohol and drugs have on your mental health? Also, I know that MDMA, what it does to your brain is essentially spikes your endorphins, yep. so to speak, you feel great. Is, is there a, what's the recovery process like from that? Or can you recover from having that massive spike in endorphins? I think you can. They, they told our generation, right? So as Generation Xers who are out here, who are about yeah. my age, so around about 50 years old. So if you're probably from about, I, I was kind of a wee bit the tail end of it. But if you were probably about 45 to maybe 55, going on 60, especially, we were the peak of that whole time. Mm. And they told us that we were going to all be messed up. Now, this is what they say. Oh, when you get to your 40s and 50s, you're all going to be depressed. Your brain is never going to produce that <laughs> serotonin again. And you're going to have horrible mental health issues. And I don't think that anything that we did back in the 90s is the cause of the mental health issues. Yeah. The issue for me with drugs, alcohol, that type of stuff is, my question is, if you're overusing it, hmm. to use anything as a... I mean, having a, a a few drinks, going out with your friends, going to Creamfields, for instance. Yeah. You, you went Creamfields, I went Resurrection. So to anybody, <laughs> you know, like, I'm sure I've just spiked some Resurrection crew out there who have stood with white gloves on and their hands in the air, blowing whistles. Um, obviously, I look very respectable now, you know, but uh, back in the day. Um, uh, that, you know, whatever you choose to do is, are you doing it for recreation or are you doing it to hide? And you said earlier, you know, I've got a very addictive personality. And I think um, 
I think there was elements of what I was doing back then, both with alcohol and mm. uh, and uh, and drugs back then, that were very much about hiding. Mm. They, they hid my social anxiety. Mm. When I was, I said this to somebody recently, techno was my, te- the, the, the creation of the rave scene was my perfect storm. I was a bullied, um, big, lanky ginger kid with specs who felt so uncomfortable in his own body. And in fact, just this will mean nothing to many, many of your listeners, but to some of them who are around my age, I hope they're about to go, oh my God. Uh, I worked in Bonkers Showbar, which you will not remember, but Bonkers Showbar was like a place where it, you probably would look on it now at 26 Harrison with amazing nostalgia going... <laughs> God love those people. Uh, God love those Generation <laughs> Xers. Was that what they had for a night out? This was Saturday night, uh, peak Saturday night, three floors of Glasgow pub, packed to the rafters, mm. all singing to Tammy Wynette, Blanket on the Ground. Dignity was a classic Saturday night. When Dignity mm. came on, the whole pub would sing, uh, dancing around the handbags, all of that kind of stuff. I couldn't get on with that at all. It was too social. There was a lot of talking. Mm. You had to talk to people. Techno came along, we all faced the same direction, stood in lines, looked forward, didn't talk it to each other, <laughs> but had an amazing night together. Uh, and your yeah. chat was pretty much, you all right, mate? Aye, brilliant, <laughs> hug, off. Yes, and then, do, 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 and then off it went again. It was perfect. Mm. Because it got me to hide from all of the issues. Mm. I didn't have to deal with any of them because I could just hide in that spiked endorphins place where I felt brilliant, I felt amazing, felt top of the world. That helped me speak a little bit. But then there was the come down. And that and that's uh, what I would say is that the the there is obviously a dip because you've spiked all this stuff and your body's tired and your mind's mm. tired. And again, there might be a neuroscientist out here who wants to say, oh, well, actually it affects this and this. And they, they might be right. My read on it from a mental health perspective was more that reality would then come back in and in yeah. comparison to where you've just been, Reality can feel very bleak when you go back to being where I was at that time, a 21-year-old working in McDonald's, sleeping Mm. in a mattress on a floor because he didn't have a bed playing sensible soccer for ages. Mm. These are all references that you won't get, by the way. But anyway, sensible (laughs) soccer was the FIFA of its day, could I just say. But um, it it was, it's it's about what it's hiding. Mm. Maybe that's why... I think that alcoholism is such a huge, huge issue now, especially, and it's getting worse, is because people have this horrendous social anxiety and they drink to numb it. Absolutely. And I know just from being at events, like there's people that I'm comfortable around, but if I'm to go out to a pub, you best believe I'm pretty drunk because I will not go somewhere that I don't really know people unless that anxiety is stripped away. And the only way to strip it away drink alcohol absolutely and i think that that's such a huge issue nowadays because people instead of facing the problem which is that you have anxiety you should maybe talk about it you should maybe go to the gym more you should maybe do more health yep maybe start your diet go for therapy therapy therapy. yeah (laughs) therapy um you know anything to 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 help it they think oh just numb it with with alcohol that's it um do, do you think that there's a stigma around males in therapy yes i think there still is i i Obviously, as I said earlier, we're getting more meals in the door, mm. um, and that's good. And I think especially when it becomes of a certain age, it, well, so you've got a gap, right? So mm. if I was to look at the guys that I see 
I see lots of men round about my age, so probably from about 40 odds maybe to kind of mid-50s, um, who I think have maybe got to a stage in life where they're like, right, okay, I can deal with this. I then see lots and lots of teenage boys, but they're normally there because mum or dad have gone, you're going to this. The gap is your age. The gap, I don't see that many 26, 27, 28, 30-year-old men. Um, I see quite a lot of 26, 27, 28, 30-year-old women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think their social groups are made up to be much more emotionally open. Mm. So, again, I don't know what your friend group's like, but in, in female friend groups, if I am experiencing anxiety... I say this, obviously, as a 50-year-old white man here. You know, that obviously, I know female friend groups like, intimately. I can, therefore, qualify to speak about them. Um, but anyway, with what I know, uh, having grown up in a, in a house full of women and now living in a house full of women with two daughters and my wife as well, um, a female friend group is much more likely that if I'm feeling anxiety, I might go to my friends and go, I'm feeling a bit anxious about tonight. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that exactly what you talked about in a male friend group, I show up with a half bottle or a bottle of a mad dog Aye. just to kick my night off, yeah. just to take the edge off. Oh, no, I'm fine, guys. I'm fine. No, honestly, man. See, once I've had this bottle, yeah. I'll be grand. I had a wee half bottle of work fast before I left the house and I'll be grand with that. Or yeah. if I have a wee smoke, uh, you know, if I have some weed or I have whatever it is or just a couple of couple of dunts or something like that, I'll, yeah. I'll be great and, and I'll be good. And therefore, we never talk about it so it doesn't become uh, mm. a, a thing. So I do think there's still a stigma with males in therapy, but I think there is still a stigma around therapy because people don't know what it is and people don't realise that it's modernised. And that, for me, is a... That, that for me, if, if I could wave a flag, that would be it. That's why I keep on saying, go for mm. therapy, go for therapy. People think they know what therapy is, but they, 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 they are often absolutely misguided by movies, television, and bad stories, mm. like people talking about the crap that didn't work and all of that type of stuff. Mm. You opened a very good point there. I think that women fundamentally have, normally speaking, I don't want to generalize, but typically have stronger social circles. Yep. Uh, and also they feel a lot more comfortable to talk about said mental health issues if they are going through anything. Um I think I think amongst guys, there's almost a shame element to it where yep. you don't want to tell your pals that you're going through something. And I know I'm so, so lucky. I've got I've got a, a group of friends that I was friends with since school and we will talk about anything. And over the last, I'd say like five to six years in particular, growing up really, yeah. Uh, yeah. they've got so much better at being like, actually, fuck it, I feel really shit today. Yeah. And then it will be a conversation instead of a, let's go to the pub. Uh, yep. Because it's really hard to say no to the pub when all your pals are looking at yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think that if you are surrounding yourself with people that are not your people and let's say doing drugs or going to the pub too much and you feel so pressured uh, to, to go and do what they do that you can't say no to them, it's probably not the right group of friends. Uh, and I say this in the nicest way possible because I've had a group of friends previously that were not supportive in any way. And the only reason that they are your friends is because you make them feel better about them getting drunk because you're with them. Uh, that's literally yep. it. You'll go out and you, you, you uh, have a drink with them and they'll feel better that you're with them because they're not the only one feeling shit. Yep. Uh, and w- whoever is ready to fix themselves first is normally the one to drop off that friend group. And for me, that was me. And I said, listen, if, you're, if this is the way it's going to act, then... I don't want to this deal is, with it. This isn't my, yeah, it's this not isn't my place. Yeah. It's not my people. It's not that I don't like you. It's just, it's not my people. And you feel so much better because it removes that pressure to keep drinking. And then it 
stops that downward spiral. But it takes a huge amount of confidence to walk away from your friend group. Massive. Um, do you huge. think a, a lot of what makes you is your friend group, in essence? Especially when you're young. Yeah. Um, and I think if you talk to people, not not always, and I'm already thinking of of people that um, that buck the rule that I'm about to talk about. Mm. But for many people, they find that as they get older, your friend group gets smaller, but it gets more intense. Yeah. And it gets to people that actually you really, really care for, and you kind of lose the stragglers along the, the way. I think the... But at any stage, and I suppose that therefore, technically speaking, actually make it more difficult the older you get. Um, I, I can only agree with you. It takes huge courage mm. to change your friend group. Your tribe. So we, we from about the age of 14, um, our brain chemistry changes. So when you're very young, you, you look at um, learning the rules. So up until about seven, your job is to learn the rules. What's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, mm -hmm. as taught to you by the adults in your life. Seven to 14 is then, okay, I, I now know the rules. Who do I want to be? Who do I like? Who seems to have their shit sorted? Who am I looking at and going, oh yeah, you're, you're a good person. I could be anybody, you know, we could walk out here and find wee boys and probably even wee girls running around with Ronaldo 10 yeah. on the back of their tops and they're looking at him and going I want to be that the, the big rise we mentioned the Lionesses earlier on one of the amazing things about women's football and women's football is that we girls are now having these role models, like you said earlier on. So I was with a, a friend of mine recently at my football team. I don't know if I want to put that out there, but I name like Brian Anthony Costello. It's, it's kind of an Irish surname. It's kind of <laughs> obvious for Glasgow. Anyway, um, but uh, one of the, the female players was in the queue at half time, getting herself a coffee. And one of our mates had his daughter there. And you should have seen this wee girl light up at the fact that she was standing and she went, she got her photo taken, it was amazing. So that's mm. what she's doing at her age. She's going, who do I want to be like? I want to be like her. Mm. I feel really bad. I don't even know the woman's... No. <laughs> I don't even know who she was. I wouldn't have spotted her. She was just a face in a queue yeah. at a pie stall, you know, waiting for a coffee like all of us are. But she noticed her. From 14 years old, though, the whole, the whole thing shifts. And if you're a parent listening to this, this is really, really important because... Quite often, parents don't get this shift. And the shift is, who am I and how do I fit in? And this is now the search for my tribe. Mm. I want to establish my own identity. And I want to find a tribe that fits with that identity. The, the easiest way to quite often look at that is to look at the, the smaller groups. Because, so the skater kids in school. I find the other skater kids who dress like me, who listen to the same music as me, who love to skate like me because they are the people I like. Hmm. And then you have, you know, your goths or your emos or whatever it was when you were kind yeah. of coming in. Then they all hang around together. And then you've got your creative kids who, you know, all but we're all looking for our tribe. So that group... And one of the challenges of growing up is, is that we can get stuck with a group because that's just the group. Mm. And that's what we do. Just like you said, we just go to the pub. You know, you said you're 26. So I'm imagining that while you're talking, maybe that change happened two, three years ago. Mm. So you've come through school. That period, by the way, from about 14, that who am I and how do I fit in, statistically for most people will end around about 21. And then you start to look about yourself and you're like, who are you? Like, who, who am I? And now it becomes the real adult bit because now you're out of uni or yeah. you finish college, you've got jobs, you're doing really serious stuff now. You, you, you're maybe thinking about moving in with somebody. You're talking about love. Hmm. But the same thing's happening around your friend group, therefore, that your identity is now 
oh, well, I've hung around with these guys since we were 10. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you're not 10 anymore. You're mm. now 23, 24. You're trying to make yourself a living. And these guys are going out and caning it so hard at the weekend that by Monday you're walking into work with your eyes hanging absolutely mashed mm. because you've caned it all weekend and then wondering why your career's not going where it wants it to be or why you're not as fit as you want to be or why you're yeah. not eating the way you want to be or why you don't have the money you want to be is because you went out and spent an absolute fortune on booze and gear at the weekend to keep mm. up with a group of people that you're not even sure if you like. But it's it's so influential because it's mm. all about that want to belong. We are social creatures. We are absolutely social creatures. We want to belong. Mm. And that thing to say, I'm no longer part of this tribe. That that you did genuinely, there are many people probably listening to this just now going, Oh, I wish I was I wish I was like Harrison who could step away. The only thing that these people who might think that have not realised yet is they are just like you. All mm. you did was you you just had the courage to do it. Mm. And if you don't have it on your own, I'm going to say it again, go for therapy. Yeah. Uh, because there are people like me out there, and this is not a sales pitch, uh, there are loads of people out there, you have to find the person that matches you, but that mm. can help you get your brain into a place where it's like, all right, yeah, this is the most sensible thing to do. I know why mm. I'm doing it. In terms of therapy, how do you match the patient with the therapist? Is there is there a process to do that? I, I think it's a very personal thing. Yeah. And I think it depends on what you're looking for. Mm. Um, uh, I, I use the example quite often that, that choosing a therapist should be a little bit, this is not a perfect analogy, can I just mm. say, but it's a little bit like choosing a car. Right. <laughs> so I can give you all of the specs, you know, and it does this, it's got this many horsepower and this many torques and it does zero to 60. Mm. You know, we, we turn around and we go, oh, it does zero to 60 in 5.7 <laughs> seconds. What difference does that make on the ME? Like, this yeah. makes no difference to us at all. So I can give you all that. But the chances are that most of us will buy a car based on our values at that time. Mm. So if I am a young dad or a young mum with two children who are under four, I'm going to buy safe. Yeah. And I want to buy one with side airbags and things that, <laughs> yeah. that are because I'm thinking safe, safe, safe. I'm not maybe thinking sexy. However, maybe I am. And maybe yeah. I want my kids to be driven around in like a wee souped up something, you know, and, yeah. and that's it. But I'll buy the car based on values. Yeah. And I think that, and feel is how I normally see it. So for me, choosing a therapist is the same. Do not get, I think it should be feel first but the qualifications are important. There is no point in buying the sexy car and then you drive it out the garage and it falls apart at the end of the slip road and it breaks down. That was a waste of money and a waste of time. It needs to have the zero to 60 and the engine and the airbags and all mm. of that to keep you safe. But if you don't feel good in it, then you're never going to really enjoy it. And therapy, I genuinely mean this, therapy can, what did I say, should... Maybe I wouldn't go as far as should, but therapy can be and often is fun. Mm. It's intriguing and interesting. You should be coming out of therapy going, oh, I never thought about it like that before. Mm. Oh, that makes total sense. Not every time with some big life-changing insight, but, but with enough of an understanding to go, now I understand. I now see why I did X, Y, Z or how my past, you know, has affected what's happened now. And then the real key is, what do you do to get through it? Mm. So how do you get over that? Like, and so 
my tip for anybody that's listening to this that's thinking about going for therapy is speak to your people first mm. and realise that genuinely in the west of Scotland, uh, or just in Scotland as a whole, UK technically as a whole, to be honest, but we are spoiled. Um, Scotland is especially west of Scotland for some reason is an absolute personal development hotspot. <laughs> we have therapists coming out of our ears uh, and they are everywhere and they do everything from counselling to CBT to hypnotherapy to NLP to things you've never heard of to integrated family systems to parts type therapy to gestalt therapists to... And each one of those modalities, and there are more that I've not, because counselling in itself is also counselling, person-centred counselling, there's uh, counselling psychotherapy, there's all the, the transactional yeah. analysis. Each one of those modalities given to a person is an entirely different thing depending on how, who's yielding the tools. Yeah. So you could go for my type of therapy with someone else and then come to me and go, that's really different how you two mm. do it. And people get into this, this myth about, no, I tried counselling, didn't work. Aye. I, I tried it, it just rubbish. It was rubbish. She just sat there nodding at me uh, and, uh, and just asked me to tell stories about stuff I didn't really want to tell stories of. So it's pure rubbish. I hated it, it didn't work. Right. What you have had is a shit therapist. <laughs> uh, and that's crap therapy and it shouldn't be like that. So don't stop looking. Go and, now you know what you don't like. Yeah. Now go and find what you do like and go, right, when you speak to your therapist, I don't want to just be telling stories about the past. I don't want you to sit there and just nod at me. I need strategies or I need tools or I need ways. Hmm. And you would hope that a good therapist would go, oh, I'm sorry, I am a nodder. Uh, sorry, hmm. that's all I do is nod. <laughs> uh, genuinely, some counsellors go through four years of counselling training just yeah. to learn how to nod. Uh, and it's, but there are others out there that do different things. There's also a thing I remember my friend talking about this um oh, i've just totally named him i'll bleep that out in the podcast but uh, <laughs> but he went to therapy and he described this process of he walked into therapy and the therapist was sitting for anyone listening to this with my hands like this on the chair so mm -hmm. like the therapist was like this and he said i knew instantly when i walked in that firstly it was going to be awkward as shit <laughs> <laughs> secondly it was open body language so the therapist was inviting you in this is why they yep. sit like this and uh, the therapist was trying to make him cry in essence, because he, he couldn't, he was struggling with this kind of stuff. Yep. And the therapist's goal that session was to make him cry. It was like, it was the most horrendous thing Ugh. I've ever done. But a month later, after looking, he found, he found the perfect one. There we go. And he or she, I can't remember who it is, helped him tremendously. Like really, really helped him, helped him get over a ton of stuff. Um, he says, and we keep in contact regularly with friends now. And that's the beauty of it. Absolutely. I think it's finding a friend when that's something you're looking for. And that's what a therapist can be. I say to all of my team, I say we're friends first. Now that obviously has a boundary. There is yeah. a, there's a therapy boundary on that. And as I said earlier, mm. I met with someone just the other day, which was lovely, who started off as a client. And now 12 years later, we're still friends and still in touch. And that's lovely. Yeah. But she now goes to a different therapist when she needs it. So if she needs a bit of therapy, she goes somewhere else. Actually yeah. to one of my students. And she now goes to someone I trained. Uh, and she's brilliant too. And uh, and highly recommended. But um, uh, friends first, therapist second. Mm. Make a connection. Because the more comfortable you feel, the more you're going to feel f willing to open. Uh, earlier on today, uh, I left and had a a 62 year old man in the room who mental health 
five or six years ago would never have even been a thing. And uh, have you watched Ted Lasso? I haven't, no. Oh, come on. Harrison, <laughs> what are you doing with your life? Uh, anyway, for the for anybody that's listening, and I'm sure many people have watched Ted Lasso, there is a, there is a series that centers, not centers, but one of the storylines is Ted's panic attacks and the fact that he starts mm. having panic attacks. This was this guy. Um, very, very... Um, experienced guy, um, amazing career, all of that type of stuff, started having panic attacks and just like switching on out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I did, uh, now, I will put this in context. I've known him for a while. We've worked together on and off over a while. So this wasn't like, I, I do not ever go down the line of, oh yeah, an hour, man. An hour yeah. and it'll change your life. You know, that's it's not like that. We had a fast therapy. <clears throat> when I say a fast therapy, most people with me will probably have about eight sessions mm. and they'll feel fantastic at the end of it. But anyway, so I've been working with this guy on and off. We did this one technique, which was about, it was a bit of almost like inner child work. It was about healing a hymn that was younger. Mm. And he came in today to say, I just thought I wanted to come back and see you at the end of the year because I want to know how to still feel this good next mm. year. And that was a life, that, like that was dad stuff that was a lifetime of issues mm. that he let go of in about 45 minutes but that was because he was open it didn't take very long and genuinely that this is a real important thing when you're in therapy change happens in a heartbeat change happens really quickly 45 minutes and he was changed it's the run-up to get to that 45 minutes that's the bit that takes the time mm. where we find out what where do we need to go what do we need to work on what do we need to do but just like you're saying about your friend it's like you've it will transform your life. And we're mm. also scared of it because we think, oh, I don't want to be vulnerable. You mentioned the word shame earlier on. Oh, I'll be so embarrassed to talk about. A good therapist will make you feel so safe, mm. so comfortable. And you do not walk into a session with me, session one, and me go, I want you to unveil your most embarrassing childhood secret. Mm. That's not how it works. We, you, you come in, we get to know each other. And I, well, my first question to every client that comes into my room is, why are you here? you say something like anxiety and I'll say, okay, anxiety, where does that happen? So if I was, if I was being your therapist just now, Harrison, I would be saying like, so if I was following Harrison around, hmm. which would be weird, but if I was, <laughs> uh, where would I see that anxiety happen? At which yeah. point you would say, well, interestingly, when I go to parties or when I yeah. go to social situations and I go, okay, that's interesting. Tell me a couple of examples of that. And from that, what my type of therapy is, is about understanding the mechanics that go on inside your head. So the meaning, like we said earlier on, that you walk into that room, your mind starts applying meaning to stuff. Who's that guy over there? I don't know him. I don't know him. And super unconsciously, your mind is going, is he a danger? Is he a danger? Mm -hmm. Or is the crowd a danger? And over time, we narrow that down. And genuinely, in my type of therapy anyway, and in many others... I want you walking out of the session one, at the end of session one, going, oh, that doesn't seem like as big a problem as I thought it did. Hmm. That problem was created when I was 10, when this horrible thing happened to me. And now I realise that my brain just went into safety mode and it's just doing that. And given this specific set of triggers, actually, that's where the problem triggers, because that's why I'm okay in podcasts, or that's why I'm okay when I'm in my own flat, or that's mm. why I'm okay when I'm with my family. Or when I was at a family wedding, there was 120 people there, I never felt anxious once, but that's because I knew them all. But I, And yeah. that, for me, is the process of therapy. What, at what point do drugs, citalopram, sertraline, what, at what point do they come into the picture, and what are your views on them? 
Okay, so uh, really simple. Um, uh, for me, all of these, uh, so there's lots of different medications, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, beta blockers. Um, uh, if you're neurodivergent, for instance, so ADHD might be put on a kind of Ritalin similarity, yeah. so Concerta, Ritalin, uh, they've got other names. Um, there is, at the moment, um, no direct um, uh, medication for autism. So if you're ASD and neurodivergent that way, uh, that's not normally medicated, albeit that antidepressants can sometimes help and anti-anxiety meds can also help. Mm. My thing on, let's keep neurodivergence to the side for the moment. Citalopram, sertraline, fluoxetine, all of these things, um, for me, they are ship steadiers, mm. but they are not a cure. And that for me is where therapy comes in. And my, my thing is, is, I hate it when people talk about them like a cure. Mm. Um, you can uh, so, for example, um, well, I was watching television last night. So me and my wife were watching telly, and uh, this this comes into the medication thing a little bit, and the therapy thing, and. Uh, we were watching a television programme that was about three people walking around houses to vote for which house looked the nicest. You can therefore uh, deduce from that what you will. It might be like Scotland's Christmas Palace of the Year uh, type thing. I, I love that programme. Uh, but anyway, and um, one of the ladies sat there and said, I have anxiety, so therefore blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. That shit winds the crap out of me. And the reason is, is because she spoke about it as if she was helpless. I have anxiety, as if it's an illness. This is then what happens when we go, I have depression or I have mental health problems. People will go take a medication and they think it's a cure because they think they're going to be like that forever. So that, by the way, this is nothing against that lady. This is it'll be how she's taught and how she, maybe she's been for, maybe she goes for therapy. I, I don't know her background. She was just mm. there to show her fancy house and, and, and her lovely Christmas decorations, which were beautiful. Um, the point here is, is that when we get into this place that mental health problems, anxiety, depression, whatever you want to call it, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, all of these different things, that because we think we're broken, we think we need medication hmm. because that's what we're taught. We're taught the medical model. We're taught a model that says, when I'm unwell, I take a medicine uh, and that medicine could be alcohol or that medicine could be a drug but they're not curing you. They're holding you together. And that's great because, mm. so for me, I'm not anti-mental health medication. In fact, that that gentleman that was in earlier on, um, I asked him, I'm like, are you still on the tablets? And he said, yes. And I said, good. I'm yeah. like, they're not doing you any harm, but you're doing the right thing and coming for therapy to deal with the, the underlying issues that mean that you have to take that tablet. So if you're out there and you're on a mental health medication, that medication is there because there is something that is unresolved or undealt with inside your mind. You are not broken and someone, a good therapist, can help you get to a point where that changes and you don't need the medication. But while you need it, go for your life. Okay, guys, I know that this is annoying because it's another ad, but please hear me out. I need you to do me a favor if you can, if it's possible. If you could hit that subscribe button, five-star button, follow button, wherever it is, wherever you are, I would really, really appreciate it. And as a result of that, I will make a promise to you. I pledge to you that I will make this podcast the best production possible. I have huge plans for this podcast this year, and I really appreciate the support. Thank you. 
So they're a bit like stabilizers to put to, 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 to kind of balance you out for a little bit yeah. and then get you back on the, the train or the boat or whatever you want to call it. And then you can deal with the issue. I, I think my kind of view is that they're the, the last port of call. I believe that if you have tried keeping fit, if you have tried getting good amounts of sleep, if you have tried cutting caffeine out, because I know for me that can set off shit. Yeah. If you, you've tried having a good diet, you know, all these other things, cutting out alcohol. If you've tried all them and it's still not working, then maybe it's time to look at that other option um, to help you through a period. Uh, but I don't think... Are they addictive? Uh, they, they, uh, let me do two things. I just want to go back on something you just said yeah. there. For some people, what I would argue is, though, that they need the mental health medication to be able to eat mm. properly, to keep fit, to do all that. Sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah. I want to keep fit, but I feel so crap. I can't even see myself to the gym. So sometimes the mental health medication allows someone to then do all those things yeah. you just talked about. Are they addictive? I am not a medical professional. So mm. as far as I know, no. But they are, I would argue that that's the same way in the argument that weed's not addictive. It's, it's mentally addictive, I suppose. That, I suppose it's... I know that I could feel good if I take these pills. And I am worried that if I don't take the pills, I may feel bad. Yeah. So it, it, what happens if I don't take it and have a panic attack in work? Do you know what? I'm probably safer just, just, just to take it, just yeah. in case. Uh, just in case. And then they become this thing where you rely on them more because of the fear of what would happen. Or as you say, yeah. the, if I take this, then it'll feel good when actually it's purely placebo, basically. But do you know yeah. what? If it works for you... It works for you at high five. But again, you have to question why you're needing to take that medication. In the first place. And because there genuinely is incredible help out there that can make you feel better. I was going to ask you a question regarding, I know that you were talking about neurodivergencies there. Schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, ADHD, dyslexia, all these kind of things. Yeah. Is there a, There's obviously tests for them. How would you test for bipolar disorder? That, I've got to admit, I have no idea. So yeah. what I would say is, is that all of those things that you just mentioned are... And again, could I just say in terms of neurodivergence, at the very low end of this, but these are yeah. psychiatric issues for me. So these are not mental health issues. Yeah, These are um, issues about brain wiring yeah. uh, and how someone's... The actual physical element of somebody's brain so bipolar for instance is a strong genetic link as does ADHD um, and uh, so an ASD ADHD has a strong mental link so is it passed on is it hereditary genetic link yeah so you if uh, you, you potentially if you can look at your parents or people in your family and go oh that answers that's why yeah. they're like that uh, that answers that question <laughs> so um in terms of that, though, there are many, many people out there that have a lot of things like this that will self-diagnose, bipolar mm. being one of the most popular. And this, thank you for opening this door for me. So one of the things that our mind does is that the way your brain works is that we think it's a big, not physically, but we think that, that our mind should work like a big... Um, like a big smooth globe. So uh, the reason I'm thinking that is because when I talk to my clients about this, I have a crystal ball that sits next to me. I think yeah. people, when they walk in, you know, you say about your friend with the hands up, people walk in and see the crystal ball next to my chair. <laughs> oh no, what have I signed up for? What is this guy going to do? But we think that that's how our personality should be. 
Um, but we can't work as a one thing. That's yeah. not how anybody lives their life. We think we're crazy because we have voices inside our head. No, everybody has voices inside their head. There is a point in some illnesses where those voices become something else. But we all talk about, well, not everybody. There are very 10% of people don't. But there are, we, we all have conversations inside our head. We all yeah. have arguments with our partners inside our heads. And that's because our mind is made up of lots and lots of different parts. So if you imagine... Um, like lots and lots of different Harrisons inside your head who all come together as a big team to get you through your life. Hmm. And they will sometimes argue and they'll sometimes fall out and they'll, uh, and they'll fight. So you talked about changing your friend group. That's not Harrison, I would imagine anyway, waking up one morning and going, do you know what I need to do? I need to change my friend group. I'm going to go and do that now. You know, you'll have, yeah. oh, no, but I mean, I have to be a nice guy and I mean, I've known them for years and yeah, but... I hate going to the pub now and having this pure dilemma in your head about all of the different parts of you. Now, at times, normally due to trauma, that can become very, very extreme. Hmm. So someone can be the calmest person and then have a trigger that can cause them to be anxious in a heartbeat. It's like a zero to 10, zero to 100 in a heartbeat. They can lose their temper. And people are looking at them going, who is that? I don't recognize that version of you. And that's because you're not the same version of you that you were two seconds ago. Because something has triggered you to go into a different part of your head. And so many people will walk into me and go, yeah, I think I've got, um, you know, either I'm bipolar or I've got personality disorder. And two sessions later, walk out of the room going, I've not felt like this Hmm. in years. I thought I was absolutely crazy mental and I'm, I'm not, I'm actually, I'm, I'm okay. And that's the risk. Just when we come to talk about bipolar and stuff, that, that there are many, many things that again are anxiety manifesting in ways, but we look at diagnoses and go, I must be that because I must yeah. be broken. So I think in terms of things like diagnosing bipolar, my thing would be don't self-diagnose yourself. Mm. I think it's almost like that thing if you find a, a, a lump on your chest or you find a lump on your testes, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. you jump to the worst conclusion yeah, in the Dr. world. Dr. Google's a yeah. bastard. Oh yes. my God. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 honestly, it's an embarrassing story. I was checking my balls and thought, I've got a wee lump in my balls, I'll go get it checked. Yeah. Like I went, you're absolutely fine, mate. And I was like, wait, wait, but it's that thing that you jump to the worst conclusion, yeah. right? And everybody does it. So if somebody's got uh, maybe quite angry at points and they think, the, the, the worst conclusion there is I'm properly broken. That's it. And it's a mental health issue. And that's the one that they'll jump to most of the time. Do, do you think there's been a huge increase in mental health issues due to that? People are more educated now on mental health that they understand, they, they kind of have a bigger understanding of what that is. So maybe they're jumping to it when actually they're just going through a tough time. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. And I think you're, we're, in a, we're in a world here where a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Yeah. And by the way, can I just say on feedback for any of the gentlemen that are listening here, well done on checking. <laughs> uh, and well done on being open about it because it is a, it's a really, really important thing and I still don't think enough people do. Yeah. But we're not yeah. here to talk about that. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that Dr. Google and that type of thing is an issue. I think that the influencer issue is a big thing because there are people out there who are uneducated talking about mental health. Um, You know, I've been doing this now for 20 years. I have seen a lot. I have sat with God knows how many people sitting in front of me having panic attacks, feeling suicidal, 
I, I have experience of just being around it and I still don't think I'm anywhere near learned enough, uh, you know, <coughs> in, 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 that, in that kind of way. And yet people will sit around the pub and go, yeah, I totally think you are this. Mm. Or I have generalized anxiety disorder. And the issue with things like that is it, it, it locks it in place. It's not something you have. It's something that's happening to you. Mm. So I, I went through this thing for a long time, still do, when I talk about it this way, but about doing anxiety and doing depression. You don't have depression. You're doing depression. You're doing anxiety. Because I wanted you to have choice back. That really pissed some people off, by the way, who are really mm. invested in the whole suffering mental health disease model. What are you trying to say? I'm doing this on purpose. And I'm like, no. Not at all. Mm. Uh, but when we say that mental health is a choice, we're not saying you wake up in the morning and go, panic attack at three o'clock this afternoon would be a good idea. Not at mm. all. What we're saying is, is that something in your head is attributing a meaning to something that's saying, I'm in danger, and then triggering a fight or flight response inside your head, you have an anxiety attack. And you might not be consciously aware of what that is, because mm. it could be really, really subtle. But now what we have is we have an influencer culture, an online culture where we are diagnosing ourselves, going onto Google, putting in our symptoms and finding out all sorts. Doing my type of job, I should be able to remember this lady's name. We can Google it later, but there's a, a really famous story about a lady in America who managed using a thing, so there's a thing called the DSM-5, it's now called, and the DSM-5 is the book that gives you all of the symptoms. So you could you can Google anything. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You can Google anything. Borderline personality disorder DSM five. Yeah. And it will give you the set of criteria that you require to be borderline, or now it's called emotionally unstable personality disorder. Um, and what she did was she did this to show how broken the system was to get committed to an asylum when asylums were still a thing. Once she was in, she turned around and said. I'm a journalist, I'm doing this for a story, I'm not insane. Yeah. And what they said was, as you could probably guess, that's exactly what an insane person <laughs> would say. And I think yeah. it took her something like two years to get out of her asylum. Jesus Christ. Because of the fact that she got herself in, because they kept yeah. finding symptoms in her that had similarities to insanity. And everything she said, they said, oh yeah, yeah, well that is what you do. Yeah. And it's a perfect example of how, th this is not a perfect science. I can give you a test, as I'm sure every single one of us did at some point, and I can stick a cotton bud up your nose, and I can stick it in the back of your throat, I can put it onto the wee funny plate thing, and in 20 minutes we'll be able to tell if Harrison has COVID. That is a black and white, you have something there. Mental health is not that. Yeah. It is not an exact science. There is no perfect test for it, even bipolar there is for things like schizophrenia, they can test, they can do brain scans, things like that. There's certain markers and ECGs and all these types of things that can say, look, this is what we're seeing. Yeah. Uh, autism, for instance, is a, it, I can't remember the specifics, but it's a wiring thing about a lobe in the brain that's wired a different way. Mm. Um, and therefore they can now test for that. And they can look for that and they can say, look, that's what it is. Albeit that most of the tests are done through speaking and, and behaviorally. Yeah. I can't do that for anxiety. Um, your anxiety, albeit that you might have a panic attack and some your best friend might have a panic attack, the panic attack might look exactly the same, but the reasons for it will be entirely unique to you. Hmm. Do, do some people have 
genuine imbalances in their brain that cause depression and anxiety or other mental health implications because i know that some people they don't have a, a genuine imbalance perhaps it becomes imbalanced over time because of drugs alcohol yes. lack of sleep lack of exercise there's so many different variants but are some people born with a genuine uh, imbalance in hormones uh, i don't know because again that's not my area but mm. my my experience would suggest yes um, and I think there's a lot of that comes. So there's two things. We we are there's a certain amount of genetic psychology, and then there's a certain amount of behavioural psychology where we learn who we are. That's my bit. But I've listened to enough about genetic psychology. A lot of it done on twins, hmm. um, and uh, and twins who have been separated for some reason at birth. So a very difficult demographic to get access to but when they have access then they can p compare things and say well they have the same issues mm. um and they're definitely as so one of the ways to think about this is that we are as we evolve and as the human race continues we are apparently becoming more and more and more and more cautious and the reason is is because and this is i can't remember the name of the psychiatrist or the the psychologist i heard, I heard talking about this his whole thing was that people that wanted to swing through the high branches to get the food in the high branches there are less of them because more of them fall and die so their <laughs> genetics didn't get passed on mm. so over time you slowly weed out the more adventurous people because they die uh, before they get a chance to pass on their genes. The, the pure crazy people who like to free climb yeah. mountains uh, fall off mountains before they happen to have children because they're so, therefore, the more cautious people tend to pass on their genes and so on and so forth. So that's a thing there. Um, so th that is definitely true. And I think that, therefore, you can have almost. This sounds terrible. It sounds like some sort of eugenics thing, but you could almost breed in hmm. a lower resilience to certain types of things. That's interesting. So think about it. Like, let's imagine that I grew up. This is going to be a terrible generalization, everybody listening to this. So I just want to put it out here. I am just using total generalizations here, right? And I know that many people in this this particular uh, career choice and profession are fantastically personality and charismatic people. Hmm. But let's imagine I was born into a family of accountants. Mm -hmm. And therefore, <laughs> uh, I grew up in a family of accountants, not particularly creative, love yeah. numbers, everything's safe, everything's checked, our savings accounts and our pensions are looked after. Yeah. You know, I have a pension from 14 years old and I grew up and I go, I want to be like mum and dad because I grew up and I look at them uh, and I say, who am I? How do I fit in? Well, I like them. I love them dearly. I'm going to follow that same thing. So I go to university and I go and study accountancy. Who do I therefore meet? I meet other accountants and yeah. other people and my tribe becomes people who are like me, but I like numbers and I like safety and security. That guy over there, that creative guy that's doing an arts degree or a sociology degree who's swinging out of a tree steaming <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning, that's not particularly me. So yeah. my tribe becomes people who are like me. So therefore my husband or or wife or partner or whoever it is that I choose becomes a little bit more like me and therefore we then have babies and therefore they're like us and <laughs> so on and so forth and, and and it doesn't always work as beautifully as that but you, you can see how very quickly you, you can therefore have someone who is already born maybe with, and I'm not saying we're away from accountants now, I just use that as an example, but somebody depending on your family who has a, 
a, a lower or higher resilience to certain things. So I've got a great example, a real example actually from some, I, I worked, because of where my very first office was, I worked with a, a lot in the rural community and I worked a lot with farmers and farmer families and farming families. They have massive um, instances now previously undiagnosed but of neurodivergence, especially things like ASD and ADHD. Um, huge um, issues with dyslexia, so they don't think they're academic, but incredible resilience to physical work. But how much of that is because that was bred into them? Because farming communities tend to be relatively closed mm. uh, and farmers like to be with farmers and things like that, not exclusively. But how much of that is behavioural? Because from four years old, you were out in the fields, you lived miles away from everywhere. Mm. You couldn't just go out and play football in the street because you lived in a farm. Your The drive to your farmhouse was two miles long, so you can't just go in and chat the door of the person next to you. And therefore, you grow up to be a little bit more insular and look after yourself. And family is really important. And this is what we found. Tradition in farming families was huge. Um, they tended to be very close, but very close families. Mm -hmm. um, but then when, you know, they had to go for help, coming for help was a huge thing you yeah. know, to, to reach out. So that's the behavioral aspect of it where we're learning how to be us. Yeah, yeah. We have a closing tradition on this podcast. Okay. Uh, and you are the number two to get this question. Oh, right, okay. So okay. what is the most valuable lesson that you've ever learned in your mental health journey? Mm. I'm going to repeat something that I said all the way through this and I bet I'm going to sit in the car after we finish and go, oh, why didn't I say that? <laughs> but the one that's come to mind and as soon as you said that just jumped into my head and I think this is maybe why I'm so passionate about it was that I wasn't broken. Mm. I was a 30-year-old... Um, yeah, I'm always very honest. I was a 30-year-old stoner um, with two kids. He was about to get married. I was... I'd found a career somehow that I'd stumbled into after working in hospitality for 10 years going, I'm going to run a pub uh, mm. and never getting anywhere near that, by the way. Um, our kids were happy. We were, I think we've always, they're now 24 and 22. We've always been a good, good mum and dad. We were always good at that parenting thing. I had zero belief in myself. I was stumbling from one thing to the next. And by sheer chance, I walked into a room because it was through my work that I had started this journey. Uh, I worked for one of the, uh, I worked for one of the big banks who may have built a huge, great big new building on the banks of the Clyde uh, recently, and they gave me my very first training as part of my job at that point. It was relevant to the job, and that was the first time that anybody ever said, "You do know it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. It can change," and that changed my life, like literally, and and that heartbeat is why I'm sitting here with you now. And that was 2003. And um, it's uh, more than, I mean, the kids changed my life in, in huge ways. Um, being married changed my life. There's many, many different aspects that changed my life. But in terms of doing a job that I'm so passionate about, it, it brings me, working with children and working with young people brings me incredible joy. Mm. And that's because my passion is to teach these young people that they're not broken because I had to wait until I was 30 and I'd made so many mistakes and I was lucky my life had gone squinty and had so many ways mm. where it could have gone 
because I thought it was broken. This is just who I am. I'm just going to be this shy, awkward, um, low self-esteem guy for the rest of my life. Mm. And somebody said, they didn't say in these words, this is now my words, but you're not broken. Mm. And actually everything that's in here can be changed. So I think for anybody listening to this, I don't care how bad things are, uh, and things might be very bleak. You might be sitting there at the moment going, Brian's talking rubbish. There is no way out of where I am at the moment. And I'm not saying the path is easy, but you're not broken. And with the right work, with the right help, mm. yeah, you can transform your life. Absolutely transform it. I think a lot of mental health comes down to purpose and having a purpose to help people the way you are. Mm and show them that they aren't broken is a pretty incredible thing. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, I, I you know, I've got questions here and I didn't look at one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll save them up. We could do a part two. I've, I've really enjoyed being here. So thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. Yeah, I literally have.